Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 121. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. So you have heard me for a long time now on this podcast talking about the importance of working with trauma using therapeutic interventions that access the emotion and trauma held in the body. Today's guest is someone who is really a pioneer in that type of work. I'm super excited to bring you today an interview with the incredible woman who is the founder of Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, Pat Ogden. Dr. Pat Ogden is a pioneer in somatic psychology and both founder and education director of Sensory Motor Psychotherapy Institute, an internationally recognized school specializing in somatic cognitive approaches for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and attachment disturbances. She is co-founder of the Hakomi Institute, a clinician, consultant, international lecturer and trainer, and first author of Trauma in the Body, A Sensory Motor Approach to Psychotherapy. Her second book, Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, Interventions for Trauma and Attachment, is a practical guide to integrate sensory motor psychotherapy into the treatment of trauma and attachment issues. Dr. Ogden is currently developing sensory motor psychotherapy for children, adolescents, and families with colleagues. Very exciting work. And I am beyond thrilled that Pat Ogden agreed to be on Therapy Chat. So in our interview... You will hear her talk about how she got her start teaching yoga and dance in a psychiatric hospital in the 1970s, and she describes how movement activates the parasympathetic nervous system. She explains that Ron Kurtz, the first somatic therapist she met, became her best friend and most influential mentor. She talks about the teachers who have influenced her from dance to rolfing and how she began to synthesize everything she had learned into what became sensory motor psychotherapy. You're going to hear a fascinating discussion of how Pat learned about trauma and the influence of Pierre Genet, who first described the three-phase approach to trauma treatment. Pat and I discuss how sensory motor psychotherapy is different from typical talk therapy and making a right brain to right brain connection. She explains how sensory motor psychotherapy helps the therapist recognize what's happening in the therapist's body as well as the information being shared by the client's body. And she explains how sensory motor psychotherapy allows trauma held in the body to be processed. We also talked about our perspectives on the lifelong journey of personal growth and healing that every human is hopefully on. So without any more time being taken up by me talking, Let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Dr. Pat Ogden. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. 
My guest today is the author of the books, Sensory Motor Psychotherapy and Trauma in the Body, and the founder of Sensory Motor Psychotherapy. I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Pat Ogden. Pat, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. So can you please start off just by telling our audience a bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Well, I started out working in the 1970s, the early 70s, as a psychiatric hospital teaching yoga and dance. And it piqued my curiosity about how the body could be helpful in healing. So that was kind of a beginning for me. And and it, uh, what I noticed then was that the patients who did those classes seemed to get better faster. And now in thinking about it, I think about how calming the yoga classes were. And as we know, that stimulates the dorsal vagal parasympathetic branch, which calms everything down, but without the fear that's stimulated with trauma. And the dance classes were very energizing. So it stimulated their sympathetic systems without the fear. So it really seems to relate in retrospect to the polyvagal theory. All I noticed then was that the the patients seemed to get better. And then in the early 70s, I met Ron Kurtz, who was the first person that I met who directly incorporated the body into psychotherapy. And he became my best friend and my most influential mentor. We worked together until his death in 2011. So I came to Boulder, Colorado with Ron. I I studied all kinds of movement therapies and body therapies, including rolfing and postural integration, uh, continuum movement, rolfing movement, just among a few of the strong influences. And that helped me develop more awareness and insight as to how the body is involved in psychological health in both healing trauma and attachment and how the body is affected with both those injuries. So that's my early history. I mean, earlier than that, I I was a dancer all my life. My mother put me in dance class at age seven and that had actually a profound influence because you were taught about carriage and poise and how to live in your body in a more integrated manner. So I think that had a, a strong implicit effect on on me. Should I go on? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, how how did you come to develop sensory motor psychotherapy through all of those diverse experiences? My main interest was really how movement and posture and body sensation could be direct targets of intervention. And that was from even the 70s. I and mean, I think that's part of why I was so interested in teaching yoga and dance in the psychiatric hospital. And although I had a lot of teachers, Ron Kurtz being the main one, but many others as well, Emily Conrad, Peter Milkier, Emmett Hutchins, who were my rolfing teachers, um, much later in the 90s, Bessel van der Kolk, Alan Shore, Anno van der Hart, Steve Porges, later in this century, Philip Bromberg, Kathy Steele in the, ni- in the 1990s, uh, Ruth Lanius, these were all people who are now on our advisory board who really contributed to my understanding and and synthesizing what I had developed kind of in an alternative world, synthesizing that with more traditional standards of care. 
But but it's my patients that taught me the most. In the 1970s, I was asked to be a referral therapist for Wardenburg Clinic, which is the clinic here at the University of Colorado. And I was referred uh, the young women who were having difficulty with their sexuality in terms of experiencing sexual pleasure. And I we didn't know anything about trauma, it seems, back in the 70s. Nobody was talking about trauma. So I was working with them in the same way that I worked with my other clients, working with strong emotions and childhood memories. And uh, they started not getting better and some got worse. And I was just baffled and I felt terrible for my clients. And I remember thinking, I'm, I'm just going to try to help them stay in their bodies. So that was the beginning of my learning about trauma. I realized that all of them had been sexually abused. All of them were out of what we would call now out of their window of tolerance. They were dysregulated. So that was my client group that taught me about stabilization. That stabilization was the first order of business with traumatized clients and that some ability to regulate and stabilize arousal had to be in effect before processing traumatic memories. So that was a big learning for me. Much later in the 1990s, I learned about Pierre Genet, who in 1898 devised phase-oriented treatment, of which the first phase is stabilization. But I didn't know anything about him in the 70s. (laughs) (laughs) He was way ahead of his time. Yeah, he was way ahead of his time. And I, I think that I... I learned mostly by doing, like the Rilke poem where he says, I know by going where I have to go. And I made a lot of mistakes, and but sincerely tried to help my clients and tried to adjust the training that I had, which was all informal to my clients, because I basically learned through st- apprenticing with Ron and studying alternative approaches and a lot of movement and body therapy approaches until until I I did formal study in psychology and finished my PhD in 2003. (laughs) To make it official. To make it official and to to give me the credibility that, that I thought I needed to do what I wanted in the world in terms of really contributing to healing trauma and attachment wounds. Yes, it seems that it's still so novel and to many people, they're really unaware of how healing trauma and even more so attachment is such a right brain process and how, you know, talking isn't it. Mm -hmm. Can you describe how sensory motor psychotherapy is different from traditional therapy? From the beginning, what I learned from Ron would be what we call right brain to right brain connection or regulation. He didn't call it that, of course, back in the 70s. He talked about befriending the unconscious. And he, he, he taught me that that's the first order of business. You have got to befriend the client's unconscious, which now we think of as the right brain implicit self. So he had interventions that I think we've elaborated on in sensory motor psychotherapy to, to work with that, like always collaborating with the client naming what you see in a collaborative way rather than in any kind of authoritative way, and 
in our work paying very much attention to that body-to-body communication, the movement patterns, not only of your client, but of you, and how that dance goes. Like, if you lean forward, does your client lean back? Does your client lean forward, too? If if you make a statement like, oh, it seems, you seem sad, or it looks like your breathing has gotten constricted, and your client, and you track your client's reaction. So there's a lot of emphasis in our work on on that implicit communication where we're tracking moment by moment how our client responds. And if we're not matched, like if we track their eyes shift or a puzzled expression or a tightening in their body that indicates kind of a mismatch, we'll correct, we learn to correct it immediately. So I think that right brain to right brain was really emphasized in my alternative training, even in the 70s which perhaps wasn't emphasized in formal training to be a psychologist or a counselor. With sensory motor psychotherapy, we're definitely interested in how the movement and posture and gesture and sensation of the body contributes to psychological distress and and injuries. So that's always been my focus from the very beginning. In fact, you know, I was much more interested in movement and posture than, than Ron ever was. And that's why I developed sensory motor psychotherapy, which has a lot more to do with movement and posture and using the body not only as an access route to psychological wounds, but also a, as a vehicle for transformation. And this comes, I think, a lot from my dance training and my rolfing training, because rolfing for the listener, it's a hands-on body work that works with the fascial layers of the body to uh, loosen up the ad- adherences, the adhesions, and also that the body can actually find its alignment and gravity. So uh, posture improves, energy can flow more freely through the body. And that happens also with therapy as people start shifting the way their bodies reflects and sustains attachment wounds and traumatic injury, their bodies start to find more balance, more peace with gravity, more alignment. And I I love that part of the work. It just fascinates me. And I I feel like with standard training and and to become a therapist, people aren't taught that. And it's it's too bad because I think most therapists are missing on a missing out on a very valuable way to help their clients. Yeah. And really important information that their clients are bringing and giving them through what their bodies are doing in the session that the therapists, if they don't have that training, they're missing so much information. Mm-hmm. And so many opportunities to support healing. Yes. Therapists. We've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is 
maybe three times in the past six years. My issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I had um, worked with people who have complex trauma for over 10 years before I did the level one sensory motor training. And I was pretty good at noticing when someone was dissociating or when they were out of their window of tolerance, even though I didn't know what that was before the training, but the window of tolerance that is. But Uh when I attended level one, I started noticing my client's dissociation much sooner than I had noticed it before Mm -hmm. and helping them be able to notice it and feel it when it was happening, helped them be more in their bodies and get back into their window of tolerance using their bodies. So if you don't even see that it's happening, then you can't help them get back online. Right. And I, I, I think that most of those signs will show up through the body, through a shift in the physiology or mm-hmm. a little shift in movement or expression. And in, in sensory motor psychotherapy, we do attempt to track those physical phenomena that speak about the implicit self. And they speak before our left brain has found the words. So I think what you're describing is really about listening to those implicit phenomena through your ability to track physio- physiology and, and uh, posture, movement, gesture, expression, even color changes in the skin. Yes, very much so. And it's much slower and it's just, it's much more attuned. Mm-hmm. I think that attunement is to the implicit elements, what Ron would call the unconscious. And I, I, I think when you ask what's different from talk therapy, if you're dependent upon the words, you, 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 have to, you have to really wait until those words are available to the client to describe what's going on. And you can ask questions to try to stimulate that description. But the client can only describe what they're aware of. And the nature of implicit phenomena is that we're not able to describe it because we can't be aware of it. It's like what Chris Bruin calls situational memory. It's triggered by reminders of the past. It's not verbally accessible. And so what you're talking about in terms of dissociation are recognizing what's not verbally accessible so that you can help your clients before they, they get too dysregulated or too out of their window of tolerance. You can help them come back into the window because you recognize the indicators of what's going on implicitly. Yeah. And I think what you just said about implicit memory, I think you said, and being able to verbally access it, I think that's the thing with attachment is that so much attachment trauma is really not accessible 
to the client in verbal memory or verbal, you know, they can't access how to verbally express what the feeling is. Right. Well, I think that's true for attachment in general, because our attachment patterns are so strongly influenced during the first few years of life. And that is the right brain implicit self, as Alan Shore says. And, and that implicit self is dominant for human behavior. So even if it's even if we're working with non-traumatic relational wounds, injuries that all of us have, because none of us had parents or caregivers that were perfect. <laughs> so even if we're not traumatized, we have an attachment imprints that aren't necessarily accessible with words and we can try to find the words but even the infant researchers they they talk about Beatrice Beebe says that the the meaning that a baby makes is evident in their movement sequences and those movement sequences are a trajectory for the future for future relationships even though they're they can be changed, of course, with, with further experience. Ed Tronic, another infant researcher, he says the same things. He says you can see the meaning that the infant is making through their, their posture, their movement, their expression, all before the acquisition of language. And talk there in talk therapy, I don't think it's as precise. I don't think the verbal narrative is as precise as the somatic narrative, the narrative of the body. I think the narrative of the body speaks more clearly to those implicit phenomena than the verbal narrative. Mm. So can you talk about how sensory motor, you talked about the fact that the body can be an entry point to accessing the emotion, but how does sensory motor psychotherapy help people process trauma and emotion using the body? In terms of trauma, we recognize now, everybody's writing about this, that trauma, first and foremost, impacts the physiology and, and the body. So we will uh, respond to a threat physiologically and somatically before we even feel the, the fear or think about it. Like if you're falling down the steps, you grab for the rail. The information doesn't even go to the cortex. It, it it's instinctual to grab to grab the railing to try to save yourself from a fall, and it's those instinctive phenomena that contribute uh, to the dysregulation and and PTSD, because trauma will stimulate high arousal uh, that's designed to fuel active defensive responses like fight, flight, and cry for help. Uh, and if those active responses aren't effective, our arousal will plummet to a hypoarousal or dorsal vagal state that is appropriate for a feigned death or shutdown state. And it's though an, all animals have those defenses. And so there are two categories. One is, is the active ones, the fight, flight, and cry for help. And then there are two immobilizing ones. Those those first three are mobilizing. They're active. If those don't work, the immobilizing ones emerge, like the shutdown that's powered by the dorsal vagal system. And also the freeze response, which is not very well understood in our field, because freeze is like a like a shock response where the, your body tenses 
but you all movement is arrested, but your sympathetic arousal is very high. So those are all instincts. Those are innate animal defenses that all mammals have that impact our our bodies. There are certain actions that go with each of those animal defenses, fight, flight, cry for help, freeze, and, and, and shut down. And our physiology becomes profoundly dysregulated, which is appropriate for if you're facing a threat to your life or your safety. But it's not appropriate for daily life. And the problem with trauma survivors is that that hasn't been integrated. So their arousal gets really dysregulated and they get triggered by reminders of the trauma into that state. They live in what Anna Vanderhart calls trauma time. But, but living in trauma time is primarily a physiological and somatic state. Sure, there's fear and terror and rage associated with it, but that's not the root of it. Um, and as Janae said, trying to process those emotions uh, for trauma is just, it's not going to work because they're designed to fuel, to fuel the defenses that live in the body. So in sensory motor psychotherapy, we really work with a bottom-up approach for trauma to stabilize arousal and to gain more flexibility within the defensive responses because most traumatized clients will develop patterns of animal defense based on what has worked in the past. So, for example, with a, a client who had childhood trauma who had to shut down because she couldn't get away, she couldn't flee, there was nobody to help. So the next line of defense was to just shut down and go numb and into that profound hyper-aroused state. Well, she's lost in that scenario over time. She's probably lost the impulse to actively defend. But as Janae said, that impulse still it still is, is there in the body. He called them acts of triumph. So we, we work to stimulate those active mobilizing defenses through the body with things like finding out how the body would want to defend, like does it want to push away, does it want to strike out, does, does your body want to run, do you want to scream for help? And then we integrate it by using mindfulness so it's not a, a uh, dissociated experience. And that's very important because we know that our cortex isn't online with trauma. We're not thinking. We're just reacting, which is a great way to survive. But those reactions, those responses that persist can't be integrated if we just enact them. So that's where mindfulness comes in because mindfulness will keep the frontal lobes online. So we can work with mindfully finding a way that the, from the client's body that that they would want to push away or strike back and mindfully executing that action, which is integrative in the brain and also reinstates those active defenses that were given up at the time of the trauma because they weren't effective. Often they would have made the trauma worse. So people always execute the best defense possible for the situation. But in that process, they'll lose the flexibility among the animal defenses. So, so we work with integrating those animal defenses. We work with physical somatic resources that help to stabilize arousal, like grounding, uh, centering, breath, alignment, containment, 
a, a wide, wide array of somatic resources that really help to stabilize. So that's how we work with trauma. Now, that's different from working with strong emotion. This was part of the problem in the 70s when I worked with these sexual abuse survivors because I had learned how to work with strong emotion. But strong emotion, expressing the, the terror, the fear of what had happened to them didn't help at all because the root of their troubles was in their physiology and their body, not in the emotion. Mm. If we're working with someone who ha has a wide enough window of tolerance that they can express strong emotion without dissociating, then we do that. Then it's different. Then the body can be used to find those emotions and those memories. There's research that shows if we, for example, take on a certain posture, and I think it's the same with movement, the memories, the events that occurred when that posture was operational in our history start to emerge. So... If a, if, a, if a client uh, is talking about they don't get any support in their life, for example, and their wife is never supportive and their friends aren't supportive and, uh, and their body reflects that by tightening in the shoulders in sensory motor psychotherapy, if we want to access the emotion of that, we could say, you know, it seems like your shoulders are tightening. Do you want to explore that? Maybe you can tune into that tightening. Maybe just exaggerate them a little bit. And as they do that, the memories very often, or at least the emotions, start to emerge of uh, when that posture was, was learned. Like, and usually, in this case, it would be like a reaction to not having support early on and the, the emotional pain that goes with that. So we want to we deepen into the wound in this case so that the emotions can be felt and resolved and expressed within the context of an attachment-focused therapy and a attuned relationship. And it's interesting because both those scenarios require working at the edge of the window of tolerance. If you stay in the middle, you're not going to really get change. And if you, if you go too far over the edge, whatever happens can't be integrated, which is what happened to my poor clients in the 70s before I started to realize what was going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I want to I want to understand if you I feel I know the answer to this, but I want to hear from you whether you think that trauma can actually be resolved. Trauma that's held in the body can be resolved through using sensory motor psychotherapy. Well, first of all, I don't think any method is the answer for all clients. I think that every method has value. There's no one answer for anybody. Mm -hmm. I think that clients find sensory motor psychotherapy very useful. People who are training are constantly writing and saying, change my practice, my clients are getting better. So yes, I, I think it can be useful, absolutely. I mean, it's my work, so I believe in it strongly. But that's not to say that there aren't a lot of other variables like the therapist's resonance with this work, with the body, uh, the clients. I mean, the therapist has to find a way to get the client to want to work somatically, or you can't do it. Right. You have to be able to psychoed or whatever. And that, that's a big challenge with trauma, especially because traumatized clients are usually terrified of their bodies because the body's been a, bat a, a battleground for them, you know. And, so there are a lot of factors. 
of course, I, I believe sensory motor psychotherapy is extremely effective. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. <laughs> but I don't think it's the only effective uh, method. Oh, yeah, yeah. There are other, other methods that, that are also extremely useful. I, I think a trauma therapist should try to get all the tools they can. <laughs> and because and, it's not easy dealing with complex trauma. Oh, I agree. And I guess what I was wondering is if you, I think I went into the training thinking that people's trauma can heal but not be resolved. And when I finished the training, I felt and I feel that, and there may be other ways to do this, that using sensory motor psychotherapy, that the trauma can actually be moved out, like the trauma that's held in the body can be processed and released to where it's not held in the body. Even though, you know, people can have so many traumatic experiences, it's not like, you know, everyone is resolved when you just begin doing trauma therapy. But that's what I'm asking is if you think it can be resolved or if trauma is something that just always will be there and can't be healed. Well, we're, we're talking about the effects of trauma. Yes. We, we can never change what happened. But, but the, we're always working with the effects, the leftovers, the, the, the responses that are geared for a past situation, not to the present. And what I think is that, well, first we'd have to define resolution. <laughs> I think that trauma can be resolved quote-unquote, to the point that people who've suffered trauma can lead an extremely rich, fulfilling, intimate life, yes. I, I feel that in, in my, all the clients I've worked with, my, that has happened for the majority of my clients. However, that said, triggers still occur, like when 9-11 happened, I had clients that I hadn't seen for years who got triggered again, for example, by what had happened uh, in 9-11 for, for different reasons. People often find unresolved elements inside when they near old age and illness. So, I, I mean, I don't think, I guess what I'm saying is that as a human being, I don't think my work or anybody's growth is ever done. I think there's always steps and and more more evolution that can happen. So there's no end point. If yeah. I think the trauma if I think past trauma can be, be resolved to the point where most clients can go on to live healthy, wonderful lives, yes. It's a process. Healing's a healing's a process that to me it's not like an end point. I'm still growing. I'm still working on myself. And, still find corners that that I that, that still need attention. And I think that's part of the wonder of being alive is is that is that we're always changing and growing because we are living systems. Yeah. Lifelong process of, of growing and yeah. learning. Yeah. But I think an important element, really important element of sensory motor psychotherapy that was very different from any of my formal training is that we believe strongly that the client does have within them what's needed to heal. And, and they do in their bodies and their psyches 
it's all there. And we just want to help create a context where that natural healing potential can come forward. So I, that's, real, that's really critical that I, I want your listeners to understand because I never feel like I have the answer. I feel like, like what I can do is help the client find those answers in, in, inside. Like, like Ron used to say, you know, we have to help the client find enough of the right kind of information from within so that, so that they spontaneously reorganize towards health. And that's a huge philosophical tenet of this work, that it's our, we have a responsibility to our clients to help them find that healing potential. That's our main responsibility, I feel, as a therapist. Yes, that's beautiful. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about sensory motor psychotherapy is that it's, I think it helps people access their own body's ability to heal so that the way I see it, you know, one could be working with a sensory motor psychotherapy therapist and, you know, together do a lot of healing work. And then the client has resources that they've gained through that work. Right. Well, that maybe were already there, but they learned how to tap into that they can continue to use, you know, over their lifetimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that that's true. I feel like the clients are, they find that empowerment from within. It's not something that was done to them or that they don't understand. It's not some gimmicky thing. Right. They know how to reaccess it. And that's, I when I was first becoming a therapist in the 70s, I was really into the, the Tao and the Tao Te Ching. And there's a quote from there that always I thought was relevant to therapists. And it was, um, when the sage works, the people think they did it themselves because they're empowered. They, they feel the power within themselves to affect their own, their own healing. Not that by any, by any means consider myself a sage, but I do want my clients to feel and to know that they got there themselves. It wasn't because of any magical thing that I did or any gimmicky thing or anything. They got there themselves. And therefore, that, that's what you're saying. Therefore, they can continue to grow and change. And, and I think in sensory motor psychotherapy, clients do develop an affinity for their body and a, and a belief in, in the wisdom of their own body, which is great. Yes, being able to return to trusting their bodies again. Yeah. Well, Pat, I know we have to finish up. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. And where can people find your work? And um, I know I can give them the Sensory Motor Psychotherapy website. Is there a, do you have a separate website? No, uh -uh, I don't. They can go to the website. They can, uh, if they Google Sensory Motor Psychotherapy, they'll find the Institute and papers and lots of lots of resources i think but the institute is the best source of information and it will list all the publications and the books and everything if you're interested in reading more and it will also tell where our trainings are because we teach all over the world if people want to find a training or if they want to find a therapist if some of your listeners think well maybe i'd want to do this kind of therapy they can go to the referral page on our website that's wonderful thank you for this great work that you're doing in the world and thank you for being on therapy chat oh you're welcome thanks for asking me 
Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Pat Ogden. She's amazing. And I needed to listen to this one a couple times through to take it all in because she has so much knowledge that just rolls off the tongue while I'm absorbing every word. I hope that you found this interview to be interesting. I would love to hear your questions and comments about this episode, which I may use in a future episode to discuss more in depth. I plan to begin sensory motor psychotherapy level two training in about three weeks, February 16th in DC. And I can't wait to dive into how this work is used with attachment because in the first level, there were so many things I wanted to know that related to my current clients, but a lot of it was the more advanced level two knowledge that I had to wait for now. So I can't wait, but it will be coming soon. And I'm sure you will hearing, you will be hearing from me with reporting back about how that's going. And I'm sure it's going to be amazing. If you are a trauma therapist and you love talking about this kind of stuff, you might want to join the Trauma Therapists Unite free Facebook group. There is a process to join that involves providing your licensing information to show that you are truly a licensed therapist and joining my email list just for that group. But If that's something that you're interested in, we would love to have you right now. We have about 350 people in the group and it's growing rapidly, but hopefully it will stay manageable in size because there's a lot of interaction and we talk about trauma. We do not do clinical consultation in that group because that would be something that would be unethical to do on Facebook. But if clinical consultation is your need and maybe you don't have access to a really trauma-informed clinical consult group or supervisor in your area, that's another thing that you can get with me. I have the Trauma Therapist Community online groups. Right now, the January 2018 group is full, and there's a waiting list for a second group to begin in February. These are very small groups, five people plus me. And we meet once a month. And the cost is $97. As of this time, it's one hour per month, $97 per month. And we do our meeting online and we do case consultation, provide support and share techniques and skills and resources to help with working with clients who have trauma. We use a secure video platform so that we can ethically hold case consultation, even though we still don't identifying details, because I know for all of us who work with trauma, protecting our clients' privacy is of utmost importance. And if you are a fan of Therapy Chat, you are welcome to join the Therapy Chat Facebook group, which is free. And there is a process to join, which involves joining my email list for that group. That group is smaller and you're welcome to join if you like. We interact there and I get feedback from listeners, which I love, including the discussion we had about having Q&As and having listeners call in with questions or write in via email. 
with questions that I will either play or read in a future episode and go into depth with the response to the question. So the first one is going to be coming up soon, and it's related to my interview with Tamara Hill when we talked about trauma bonding, and it became a discussion about intimate partner violence. And I'm going to expand on that based on listener Elizabeth's question. So look for that coming up soon. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Therapy Chat. I appreciate you. I value you. I'm so grateful for you, and I absolutely love hearing from you. So please, if you have a question or something that, of course, you may not want to be played on in a future episode, but maybe just a question about where to find trauma-informed trainings, I get that question a lot, or resources for connecting with a trauma therapist in your area. You know, I don't know all, but what I do know, I'm very willing to try to help with. So you can always email me through the website, therapychatpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.